Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. If you don't know already, there are show notes to each episode. If you go to spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcasts, you will find links to all the episodes. And if you click on those links, that will take you to the show notes. Why bother looking at the show notes? Well, it's an easy place to find links to all the resources that are mentioned in our interview. Whether it be a book or a movie or a person's website or some other resource that came up during our interview. It's pretty handy and I suggest you check those out. Now this month I do have a special request of people. I know that several of you have left a tip in the tip jar, which is one of the links on my site and I really appreciate that. I offer these podcasts for free. And But it's really nice when someone does contribute a little money towards it. Like right now, I'm using a new recorder, which I bought just for this podcast. So thanks to all of you who've donated towards that. But this month, the money's not going towards me. Any donations I receive this month are going to the TAT Foundation. And the foundation is currently raising funds to build a retreat center in North Carolina. So I'm really excited about that project, and in fact, they are in the final stages of raising funds for that and are doing a 60-day challenge, which I'm a part of. So I'm reaching out to all of you to help me help the TAT Foundation raise these last funds that they need to begin construction on the retreat center. If you'd like to know more about that project, you can actually go to tatfoundation.org forward slash tat hyphen home tat hyphen home dot htm if that's too complicated for you just go to tatfoundation.org and click on the about button and you'll see a a menu Uh, and in that menu just click homing ground and that'll take you to the page to learn more about the retreat center that they're building well now all that's out of the way let's get to the good stuff and that is today's guest who is Daniel Ingram. Daniel is the author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. I was turned on to Daniel's work probably about two years ago. I started to read his book. I found it unusually hardcore, and I didn't get very far in it, to tell you the truth. Uh, but second time around, I've been looking at it again, and I've heard some very positive things about Daniel from a friend of mine who's worked with him. Uh, and this time around, I was really struck by the book. I uh, wanted to talk to Daniel, and as you'll see, we had a really great interview. Uh, we talk about his early years of seeking, some of the common pitfalls that he's seen in seekers, as well as his what I think extraordinary claim that if you follow the practices as outlined in this book that will lead you to enlightenment so without further ado here is the interview with Daniel Ingram first I just wanted to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this with me I really appreciate your time yeah happy to happy to help if I can great 
and I wanted to begin the interview, frankly, at the beginning or the very early beginning. I was curious if you grew up in a family that had spiritual interests or if that was something that, that just sort of developed on its own. Well, so I think all families are likely to have some relationship to spirituality, even, you know, uh, depending on how that goes. Uh, both of my parents are spiritual in their very different ways. And mm -hmm. um, my mom actually was doing uh, Vipassana retreats before I even knew what that was. Uh, I was probably a teenager somewhere when she did her first Goenka course. I'm not exactly sure when that period was, although it wasn't something we really talked about much. So it wasn't Curiously enough, even though my mom was doing um, Vipassana, we we didn't really uh, talk about that. Um, and I got into it through totally different channels on my own. My father is sort of generically supportive. His uh, spirituality is tricky to describe. Um, he might be uh, classified as an odd mix of uh, scientific materialist, rationalist, academic, coupled with vaguely Christian something, you know, he says the Lord's uh, Prayer before he goes to sleep every night, and then he has seen um, and uh, believes in ghosts. Mm -hmm. So put those together, and, and, um, and but he's relatively uh, open and unimposing about his religious views, uh, doesn't talk about them much, particularly, mm -hmm. though clearly leads a very uh, spiritual life. Both of my parents are very spiritual in their way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you mentioned as a teenager, it sounded like you, is that when you first got involved in your own search? So uh, it's hard to exactly tell where it all began. I crossed the arising and passing away somewhere around the ages of 14 and 15, which is an insight stage for those not familiar with Theravadan terminology that usually involves big openings, you know, explosions of consciousness, traveling out of body, kundalini phenomena, blah, blah. It's usually... Uh, most people's big first sort of what they think of as an awakening experience or something. Mm -hmm. um, although the Theravada would put that sort of uh, somewhere on the map before awakening, but whatever. Anyway, the point is, though, is that I did not know what it was. I had no conceptual frameworks for it, and it, it definitely made its mark on me, though I didn't really understand that connection at the time. I was just a kid and, um, you know, in junior high school and high school, which were strangely stressful times. I was a uh, very soft... Uh, relatively philosophical from an early age. Um, but in terms of formally spiritual questing, uh, that sort of started in college um, and then really started going on retreats uh, about a year and a bit after college, a little over. Mm -hmm. uh, the experience that came to you when you were 13 or 14, that just, it just came out of the blue, sounds like? Uh, I don't think so. So tracking it way back, um, and this is the kind of stuff that can make people look at you funny when you say it, but you know, whatever, I'm old enough, I don't care anymore. Uh -huh. So when I was about three and a half, I used to uh, be able to get into what we would call jhanic states. So I used to be able to lay down and get into these very, very blissful, peaceful states just by um, sort of chilling out and noticing breathing. Where in the world I learned that, I have no idea. And why mm. I lost it somewhere around the age of four or so and wouldn't do it again learn anything like that again until I got formal meditation training um, over 20 years uh, later. I'm not exactly sure. So that's the first interesting data point. Um, the second interesting data point would be that I spent some time at a Quaker school uh, in mm -hmm. second through fourth grade in uh, Durham, North Carolina, where we would sit in silence for uh, 10 minutes uh, before school every day. 
And then I actually took a class in fourth grade that was an elective. It was a very interesting sort of hippie school where it was called Close Encounters and it involved, you know, analog synthesizers and all sorts of other strange things. It was just this sort of very weird mishmash of this uh, teacher just sharing their interesting eclectic life with us. But one part of that was visualization meditation where we, you know, do the standard things where you'd, you know, squeeze your toes and then relax them and feel the, you know, you know, golden healing energy coming in or whatever. And we'd visualize ourselves getting very big or very small and walking around our bodies or walking around the universe or whatever it was. So it was that kind of stuff. That was, you know, somewhere around 1979 or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, then um, I started, uh, I love, I've had flying dreams and lucid dreams since I was probably five or six years old is the earliest one I can remember. And I've always enjoyed them and found them fascinating. And somewhere in my teenage years, for reasons I don't really understand, I started trying to um, uh, make it more likely that I would have flying dreams. And before I would go to sleep, I would start visualizing these gigantic 50-foot billiard balls in space and practice visualizing myself flying around between them. Where I got this, I have no idea. There was no one telling me anything like this. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, whatever um, process... uh, that uh, started, um, tripped off the arising and passing away event. And during a dream, I uh, basically a, a large witch riding on a black horse pointed a wand at me and my consciousness exploded all over the room. And um, I woke up uh, to my body sort of being in fragments buzzing all over the room and sort of then snapped back into my body and my bu- body was buzzing and then I was buzzing. And then this very weird, energetic, vibrational, strange, you know, sort of weird Kundalini-ish um, thing. And then that's sort of really the formal beginning of more cycling of that. And I would cross that same event in different forms about six times before I finally uh, started doing uh, meditation retreats um, in August of 1994 at the Insight Meditation Society with Christopher Titmus and Charles Rogel and Jose Rezig. Now, I I think if that had happened to me when I was 13 or 14, I would have thought I'd gone completely insane. Well, it only lasted, I mean, it was a very brief experience. It was very powerful, but, you know, the whole thing in terms of the real fireworks lasted maybe five or 10 seconds, mm. but it was definitely quite a moment. The thing is, though, having no frameworks for it or having any idea of what it was, there was nothing to really hang it on. Do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? There was no sense, oh, yeah, this is um, something significant that just happened and I moved on. So it didn't get really much processing at the time. Later on, when I would learn the maps of meditation, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that, that thing I, that happened when I was a kid, I, yeah, that was kind of important. So mm-hmm. so what what drove you to go to or to enter into formal meditation practice? Well, so the, the first point is that when you cross the arising and passing away, it's like you're halfway in and halfway out. So it starts some process that then somehow gives you this sort of strange sense that you need to finish something or find something or or mm. do something. It's like, and it may not be entirely obvious to the person what that is or what they might be looking for, but it, it did at least for me provide some sort of general, very um, poorly calibrated homing beacon to something, right? And, right? and so I philosophized and I you know, did various things and sort of homebrewed some of my own meditation things along the way and then ran into a guy named Kenneth Folk in college who also had 
uh, crossed the horizon and passing away under various circumstances previously in his life. And we were trying to figure this out and we didn't really have any good teachers or things. So we sort of, you know, read everything from Ken Wilber to, uh, you know, um, various other mystical uh, writers like T.S. Eliot and stuff. And mm-hmm. and then finally Kenneth Folk uh, went back to California and he met a guy named Bill Hamilton. And Bill Hamilton oh, said, oh, go do, here, here's what you're looking for and here's how to do it. Go do the three-month um, meditation retreat, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. And he did that. And then he went off to Asia for a year of meditation practice there. And when he came back, um, I was like, wow, okay, that seems like a good idea um, based on uh, some of the changes it seemed to produce in him. So some years later, I started uh, doing my own retreats. And uh, that was that. Hmm. Okay. So uh, I've heard the name Kenneth Folk before and seen it on the internet. He's about the same age as you? He is 10 years older. So he came out uh, from California to play bass in the band I was running sound for, and then we became friends, and he ended up being a roommate of mine, and then I went back to California, and we kept in touch, and uh, that's how um, a lot of that went down through uh, Bill Hamilton's influence. Can you can you give me a sense of some of the the traditions that you that you followed and and. Uh experiences that you you had over that period of time is that too big of a question oh no that's uh so there were two sort of main um traditions both of which are pretty explicitly buddhist with a few little additions so my first retreat i went on was with christopher titmus and charter rogel and jose rezig uh christopher titmus was a thai monk so he teaches in a thai forest style though um uh definitely uh filtered through his uh, remarkable personality um, Sharda Rogel, actually, while she teaches Vipassana, actually came up in Hindu Vedanta with Punjaji, um, the Buddha of Lucknow, as he's sometimes referred to. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, and then Christopher, when I would go on retreats with him, my first four retreats were with Christopher, no, sorry, first three retreats, and then two later retreats, sorry, were with Christopher Tr- Titmus and the people that he would um, have around him who, who were variously eclectic. So so Fred von Allman was very Tibetan, Mahayana, um, Bajrayana-ish guy. And then uh, Yvonne Weir, I'm not exactly sure what she was, very spiritual and very wise. But uh, And then um, Subhana, she was um, a mix of Zen and uh, Vipassana. She's a rare person who has dual lineage in um, both of those uh, traditions. So I would sit with them. And then I started doing Mahasi Sadao practice when I went to MBMC um, in the summer of 1995 and sat with a guy named Sado um, uh, Urajinda. And that's when I really learned noting. And things had, I'd had a lot of interesting experiences up until that point, but that is when I feel like I really learned to practice. That's when I really started to get a sense of what technical mastery was, what the maps were, how to really do stuff. And then, so that was my um, third retreat. And then the Let's see here. My fourth retreat was with Christopher uh, Titmus again and crew. And um, I think I may have gotten something in my retreat order earlier wrong. But anyway, the point is that th- um, that's when I got what we would call uh, in the Theravadan tradition, stream entry is um, sitting with Christopher Titmus um, and his fine crew, uh, Norman Feldman and um, some of the others as well. Uh, so at the time, monastery in Bodh Gaya, and that would have been January 13th, 1996. And then after that, it was um, a bunch of retreats at Bhavana Society and more with Christopher Titmus and crew. And then more at Bhavana Society, 
bunch of different retreats over the years, influenced by Bhante Gunaratana, which is Sri Lankan Buddhism, as well as a whole lot of reading that you know was quite broad. But in terms of the practices, I was doing very relentlessly Theravadan with some Vajrayanish model and conceptual influences that sort of brought more um, uh, of a accepting an open relationship to the emotions and what the Theravada would sometimes call defilement. So I actually found that uh, a fusion of the two basic Theravadan techniques that just are like six sense doors, three characteristics, eight jhanas, you know, 16 stages of insight, you know, four paths, that very basic stuff with um, coupling that with sort of a Vajrayana perspective that came through the writings of Chogyam Trungpa and, you know, uh, sitting briefly with uh, Chokyanima and um, some local Kadampa stuff. And, you know, so there was a range of influences in there. Uh, but the vast majority of it was very straight up Mahasi Saidao, Theravadan, Pali Canon, and commentarial Buddhism. Too long an answer? <laughs> <Is that all right? laughs> I was I was thinking to myself, now I'm going to say, uh-huh, but I don't really understand everything that you just said. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, oh, no. Sorry. I'm, I'm just no, teasing you a little bit. Please stop me at any time because I can just sort of go go off. And so just uh, um, please interrupt if you have any questions about anything because I, I don't always understand exactly who my audience is going to be and who might be listening. So it's important to clarify things so it just doesn't sound like meaningless gibberish. I'm sure uh, I, I recognize uh, some of the names and I'm somewhat familiar with some of the traditions and I'm sure there'll be many people who are listening that are far more familiar than I am with all of those. Uh, one thing that you said that really struck me is this idea of a of a fusion of different practices or different traditions, uh, which is something that that I have felt in my path has been very important, as opposed to just following one teacher, or following one tradition. Uh, did did you run into any? opposition, if you will, within yourself or others that you shouldn't mix and match, let's say? Say that again so I understand your question a little bit better. Opposition within myself meaning? Meaning, did you have any any thoughts that, oh, you know, maybe I should just stick with one tradition or one teacher, or did you have any teachers who recommended that to you? Because uh, I, th I think the idea of, of the fusion is, is important, but not everyone. Well, I mean, I've heard some teachers say, you shouldn't do that. You should pick one thing and stick with it. While I was sitting with a number of different teachers, in some ways the emphasis is, or the emphases, sorry, were very similar. So, you know, six sense doors, three characteristics, um, meaning impermanent suffering, no self, you know, hearing, seeing, thinking, you know, feeling, etc., is pretty core of Vipassana across the various teachers I was sitting with, you know, focusing on the breath, learning to concentrate, learning to um, gain some uh, metacognition on the mind to understand what it was doing and redirect it to what you wanted it to do, to, you know, notice the sensations of the body, to not get lost in the stories and tape loops of the mind. Those were all pretty stock and standard instructions. There were some little differences here and there, but most of it was pretty straight up Theravadan Vipassana. Hmm. Now, that's not to say everybody had exactly the same take on things. And where the divergence really came, became, yeah, the key divergence was later with when I actually had some insight and I was sort of in what I think of as the middle stages where each of the various traditions has various maps of what they think the territory of awakening should look like and how it should progress and what stages you should go through. And those um, really 
hinge on, at least from a Theravadan point of view, what relationship you should have to what are generally called the, you know, the ten defilements. So with uh, the emotions and sort of darker emotions of greed, hatred, delusion, um, restlessness, worry, doubt, fear, um, those kinds of things, jealousy, etc., lust um, coming up, and uh, whether or not those should be, you know, eliminated entirely or attenuated or seen clearly as they are becomes a great source of debate. Uh, sorry, of debate and division um, within the various strains of Buddhism. So, um, they, the various strains of Buddhism, the Vajrayana, the Mahayana, and the Theravada, do not all agree on their maps of awakening. And you know, when you get into that territory and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I tune my mind um, to get a more clear understanding of what's going on? And you know, the emotions are a substantial portion of what we um, end up having to deal with uh, on the cushion and in the rest of our daily life. And your working model is likely to have a strong impact on how all that goes. Mm -hmm. And I came into it with one working model, which was a very straight up four paths Theravadan model. And then I ended up getting insights that convinced me from my own experience that that was not going to be an optimal model for what I was looking for. And then I was lucky enough to find the Vajrayana um, uh, models, which uh, advocated for a much more broad and inclusive um, relationship to the emotions and with, by finding teachers like the five Buddha families, which sort of say they're the unawakened and the awakened versions of all the emotional energies. So, you know, you can have Vajra anger, which would be sort of the awake version or whatever, which is, a, a you know, or that kind of thing. It's a moderately dangerous concept that people can use to justify all kinds of terrible behavior all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but still, uh, the point of uh, sort of feeling each of the emotions as energies, as real living mammalian things, as more colors and textures became much more important to me than figuring out how to eliminate um, the emotions that I didn't like or found um, unpleasant. And so that was where the real divergence between traditions um, began and still continues in some ways. So and that, the politics of the round, around that is very complicated um, because while I teach meditation techniques that are relentlessly Theravadan, I don't use all of their maps. And so mm -hmm. that puts me in a strange place where nobody really wants to quite <laughs> get behind that necessarily. That's not true, actually. So um, so it's interesting as I've, as I've you know, gotten to meet more meditation teachers, you know, I've had people come up to me and go, actually, the, the way you look at that is, is actually the way that makes the most sense to me in my own practice. And these are, you know, teachers that have, you know, written big books and you know, mm -hmm. teach at big centers and stuff. So uh, so anyway, but that was where the primary divergence came in. And that was very stressful uh, for me initially when I started to, to feel that sort of tension and pull as my own experience was telling me one thing and the maps and models were telling me another. And right. um, yeah, that initially was pretty painful and now I'm fine with it, you know, but th there was a transition there. Well, uh, regarding your, your book, uh, which lays out... I. I presume it lays out as best as you could your complete map of the stages to enlightenment. Um, yeah, I I've started reading reading it, and I'll definitely recommend to people don't try to read the book in two days. That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not easily. No, no. I I gave uh, a, a somewhat noble effort, but I've failed. Um, 
I I do want to ask you though, right off the bat, just to just to get it out there. I mean, on the very on the front cover, it says the Arhat Daniel M Ingram. Uh, yeah, I mean, some... I mean, you're certainly not shy <laughs> about saying that. Uh, you know, I'm 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 enlightened, I'm, and I'm assuming that one equates Arhatship with enlightenment. Yep. Is there anything more that you're looking for to discover in that in that realm of and I'm not sure of your language transcendent experience if you will or in, in your map is enlightenment and our hot ship that is the end yeah it's a it's a great question and like sort of the big question really so uh, first thing um, the word transcendent, um, it would be sort of, I would actually say this is sort of the reverse of transcendent and that it's sort of ridiculously embodied in a weird sort of way. So the first um, important point is that in this experience, whatever you want to call it, right? And so the, the politics of using this language is is pretty toxic a lot of the time. So yeah. by saying um, something like, you know, uh, you know, the Arhat Daniel Ingram, that could be uh, seen by many as a pretty obnoxious or toxic move. Um, and for some people, it definitely is. So my apologize, you know, sorry, my apologies to anybody if that uh, caused any trouble for anyone. Um, the the benefit, though, is that some people go, oh, wait, it might actually be able to be done. You could actually do something real. This is, you know, or at least someone's claiming that they can do something. And mm-hmm. the nice thing is, is you can, you know, the way I, I look at the meaning of the word and there we could debate, you know, forever the the various texts and all that. But um, the point is that when the six sense doors are just seen all the way through as they are, meaning that no sights, nor sounds, nor thoughts, nor um, physical sensations, nor tastes or smells or whatever, are creating any sense that there's a permanent, stable, observing, controlling, um, you know, central, uh, separate, permanent Daniel, then that is what I would call our hot ship. Mm-hmm. So, and this is something you can learn to do. So if you paid enough attention to the six sense doors and just notice them happening again and again and really notice all the sensations that seem to end up being you, you will find that they're all totally transient. Um, they all seem to just be happening where they are. You can't find a stable observer. You can't st- find, sorry, you can't find a stable controller. You can't uh, find a stable thinker or a stable anything. You can find patterns of repetition that you can try to, you know, turn into some sort of sense of a self, but it's this incredibly ephemeral, changing, fluxing, moving thing. And the more clear you get about your the basic sensate information coming in, it's really Vipassana 101, you know, notice what's happening, you know, in your sensate world. Um, the more you do that, the more you can deconstruct the sense that there it really is any permanent self. So the nice thing about that is, you know, regardless of all the politics, it's doable. It's verifiable. I, I know a reasonable number of other people who have done it and come to the same conclusion that they think, yeah, this is um, this is something that you know the Buddha seemed clearly to be pointing to. And if you do these techniques long enough or well enough, um, this seems to be the logical endpoint. So that's one axis of development is just the perceptual clarity that cuts through the fundamental illusion of duality or separateness or permanence or you know abiding selfhood or whatever you want to call it. So that's one thing. And then there's the rest of it. So developmentally, right? So that that um, insight happened to me in April of 
2003 while on retreat with a guy uh, named Saito Upandita Jr., um, so named to distinguish him from Saito Upandita, sorry, uh, Saito Upandita Sr., the uh, monk who um, uh, you know wrote a number of books and is, is better known than he is. But he was a remarkable teacher, and um, I'm very, very grateful to all to him and all the other teachers, by the way, um, for their support. I should mention that now. Uh, but on, but the developmental stuff has continued. So, you know, that happened, uh, what, how many years ago is this now? Um, 14 years ago. And obviously, I've, I, you know, in my life, I've grown a lot since then. I became a doctor. I had a whole lot of, um, well, I guess I was already technically a, a doctor. I'd graduated from medical school, but it's not really like being a doctor, like going through residency and spending your years working in, you know, level one trauma center. So, um, so I, you know, I, I've done a lot of clinical practice. I've gotten older. I've, you know, understood more about life. I hopefully have matured a little bit. And in terms of practice, things continue to unfold. That's the remarkable thing. And the interesting thing is all the traditions make a pretty um, extreme distinction between arhatship and Buddhahood or whatever you would call some final something. So um, even within the Theravada, there are very clear lines drawn between arhats and Buddhas. And so the elimination of all unskillful pers- personality traits uh, would be something, you know, that you would accomplish in at Buddhahood. The, you know, elimination of all unskillful uh, karma would be something you wouldn't even accomplish until the death of a, a fully awakened Buddha. The, you know, there are all these um, uh, additional things to work on, you know, so there were arhats who didn't have, you know, concentration skills or jhanas. There were arhats who didn't have powers. And so these are all things that even from a traditional point of view, you can work on. And clearly the Buddha himself even matured as he, um, you know, continued to teach uh, the Dharma as he wandered around Northern India and Nepal or wherever he was. So, um, you know, you, you can see sort of a progression as, as he taught in terms of, you know, letting nuns into the order and, you know, the way he related to the order and the way he related to teaching and the way he related to all kinds of stuff um, was very different from the moments after his first awakening when he didn't even think any single other person could understand uh, what he had understood as it was too subtle and too difficult, which was the first conclusion he came to about um, the Dharma. And so uh, in that same way, you know, I've, I clearly continue to grow on lots of fronts and it's been fascinating to watch, but it's been a whole lot nicer from a place of um, insight. So, you know, I would definitely recommend, um, you know, learning Vipassana well, learning the the shamatha jhanas well, the concentration states well, you know, practicing morality well, um, following the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, if you want to be all sort of formally religious about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, basic sensate clarity um, seems to be an extraordinarily good idea and it really can deconstruct um, viscerally, moment to moment, the sense that there is any um, abiding self, and you can lock that in as an understanding that eventually just is locked in, and there doesn't, there's no other alternative. You can't, you know, you, you couldn't figure out how to go back if you wanted to. When you were, when you were deep in your practice before, before um, the experience or, of arhathood, if you will, <laughs> or ship, uh, did were you did you formulate the the desire that you know i'm i'm after enlightenment i want to be awakened or was it something else that you were after or did you even think of it in that way you mean when i started going on retreats back at the beginning yeah or in the in the middle stages if you will were were you aiming i i'm kind of thinking of myself like i had this idea of enlightenment and like i want 
this thing. I don't know what it is, but I want it. Was there something like that for you? So the idea was always very intriguing. And then I went on my first retreat. And when I went on my first retreat and I got to be around teachers who were clearly extremely wise and clearly very awake, it was like, that's it. I'm going for that. Have a nice day. I'm going to figure out how to do that. And I radically restructured my life, my schooling, my career path, and everything to fit with my um, retreat schedule plans and desires um, mm-hmm. in the early years. And, and, you know, finances and everything suddenly took a total backseat um, to trying to figure out uh, how to make that happen. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm nodding my head. I totally understand that drive or that desire or that reframing of one's life. Yeah. I, I believe that you make this statement in your book that if a person does the practices that you have outlined in your book, like that will lead to enlightenment. Is that, uh, that's a very bold statement to me. Is, do, you, do you actually have folks who have done that with the book, who have followed it and have have gone through the stages? Yes. And, well, so the first thing is these practices are not mine or anything. So yeah, they, they come out of original, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the first really important point. It's not like it's just my stuff, right? I was taught by a whole bunch of people who were taught by a whole bunch of people who got this stuff, you know, yeah, from very old point. texts and you know, it goes, goes way back. So that's the first thing is I, I may have a slightly different voice to it or a slightly different take on it, um, but it's not original material. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. This stuff has been well time-tested in, in tons of monasteries for a very long time. And particularly in the 1900s to 2000s, you know, what happened with the sort of real renaissance of Vipassana and insight practice and meditation that happened in Thailand and Sri Lanka and, and Burma in particular um, really revived a tremendous amount of validation of techniques that were very, very old and produced a whole lot of awakened teachers and a lot of awakened other practitioners. And, you know, Mahasi Sadao clearly showed that if you put someone who's willing to follow instructions and able to follow basic instructions in a Mahasi Sadao, you know, insight retreat, and you put them there for three months, they've got about a 50% chance of getting stream entry in that three-month period of time, which is a really high success rate. And then after that, you know, you're in the stream. So the the other paths are, well, inevitable is sort of the wrong word um, in some ways, you know, in this lifetime. They, I mean, the insights and cycles just keep on going at that point, because then, then you've really thrown the switch and you're in the thing. So, um, so this, and as plenty of other Thai forest people and other meditators have noticed, there is something mechanical about this. If you can get people to actually do the techniques and, you know, then they get insights. And if you can get them to learn to focus, they get concentration states. And if you can get them to follow the teachings and morality, their minds and hearts and things, you know, get softer and wiser and better and kinder. And, and that's just true. So uh, it's and it's verified again and again and again. I, I guess you could sort of point to my book and say, yeah, there are people who have followed my book to that, but what they're really following is a whole bunch of stuff that came from a whole bunch of people before me to that. One concern that I have about maps, and this goes back to, to teachings that I was following early on, is what uh, I would call the, a danger of a placebo effect, if you will, of following a map that uh, scripting. Scripting? Is that what you said? 
Scripting, yeah. Scripting, yeah. Oh, yes, we may be saying the same thing that uh, if I do X, Y, and Z, it's going. It's, I've been told it's going to lead to this state. Everybody says it's going to lead to that state, and therefore I kind of create that state because I'm following the map. Is that a, a sounds like that's something that you're familiar with? Yes, except what happened to me um, from my own experience is I had crossed through these stages. I'd crossed through the rising and passing wave, which is the big, you know, sort of explosion high where you're all like, you know, excited to practice and, you know, you know, it's very pleasant and it's, you know, amazing and can involve all kinds of cool experiences. And then you hit what we call the, you know, knowledges of suffering or dark night or whatever you want to call it, which follows the arising and passing away like thunder follows lightning. And then if you're lucky, you get to equanimity and most people then fall back and cycle around that a whole number of times before mm. they get to what we would call stream entry. And then even after that, there's a whole lot of cycles. But that said, I had crossed through that exact cycle, exactly as the old texts, sorry, texts predicted it um, many times before I ever found the maps. I mean, it was like clockwork. And mm -hmm. so I was on this retreat. So when I was introduced to the maps, I was on this retreat at um, the Malaysian Buddhist uh, Meditation Center with Saida Urajinda. And I had gone through all this crazy stuff, like, and, you know, I had gotten all these weird, you know, sort of mechanical jerking sensations, and my, I was messing up the breath. And then I'd gotten into all this sort of blissful stuff and these wild shakings and vibrations and crazy, like, dropping down into these, like, you know, deep, you know, sort of almost time-stopping, like, narcotic goo strangeness. And then I'd, you know, it was like seeing this whole field of, like, terrifying green skulls and and all these, you know, sort of experiences that I were like, what the hell? I, they seemed, I was sure they were, like, the kind of thing that were totally unique to me. The notion that anybody would have ever mapped these, much, much less with specifics, much less the exact pattern in which they in, in you know, had unfolded for me on that retreat and numerous times before on previous retreats and in, even in daily life. Um, I had no concept of that. And then towards the end of the retreat, he played the scratchy old tape, you know, that clearly had been played hundreds of times of some old Burmese dude with a really thick accent describing the stages of insight. I was like, oh my God, really? Really? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. he just said exactly what had happened in order with freakish mm -hmm. levels of detail. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. They knew? Like they knew? Wow. And, but that was, it was a good thing that they played the tape because I'd gotten to a stage that's known to be a really hard stage, which is called reobservation, which has a boring name, but is a, is a ass kicking stage. And, and I had gone from being able to sit for, you know, hours at a stretch with no problem to five minutes on the cushion was, you know, producing the most unbelievable aversion and creepy sensations in my body. And I would like literally be, find myself just jumping up off the cushion, unable to stop myself. And so mm. they played this tape because that, you know, what you want to do is convince someone in that difficult stage that, hey, you're just right on the cusp of something awesome called equanimity. Um, so, which is a really nice stage. So he played this tape and I was like, wow, okay, if I'm, even though this is horrible, if I'm really close to equanimity, then um, you know, maybe I really need to get back to practicing and, and practice well and sit through this. And that's um, exactly what happened. And that's the kind of empowerment that the maps can produce. So yes, they can cause people to script and do practice, but if they actually are still doing the technique, it doesn't even seem to matter. Because if you're doing the technique and actually noticing the arising and vanishing of what happens at all your six sense doors and notice that that ha happens on its own and find any little strange tensions or um, things in there that could constitute a sense of suffering, then regardless of whether or not you have the maps, it's still going to um, move you along. And regardless of whether or not you have the maps, if you're not doing something like that, you're unlikely to make progress in the same kind of way from a viewpoint point of view. 
Yeah, you know, I yes, I appreciate you saying that. It just kind of the the pieces of my argument fell in place, if you will. Of it's what you said about if you're doing the practice, because people who fall into the danger of the map are just reading the map and imagining. Right. But if you're doing we the see practice, that. it will in walking it will take you there. You can't. Yeah. You can't fake it. That's right. And the other thing is, as hundreds, you know, so I, I run a website called the Dharma Overground, um, and, you know, it's got 5,000-ish members, and I don't know how many lurkers, but um, quite a few. And as literally hundreds of people have noticed, the maps really help them, because they're like, you know, me or my partner or my, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever had this crazy experience of all this vibrational stuff and Kundalini stuff and saw bright lights and body was shaking and were hypersexual and didn't sleep for three days and, you know, could, you know, read other people's thoughts or whatever, you know, wild experience they had in the arising and passing away. It's not always that dramatic. And then they hit the dark night and they're like, wow. And suddenly I demolished my finances, my relationship, or, you know, they developed, you know, demolished our relationship or whatever in career and schooling and all that stuff in the dark night, like people do. And they're like, wow, I wish someone had told me about the maps and how to compensate for them and that this is sort of not normal behavior, but we see it a lot. And there are literally hundreds of reports of people spontaneously who have gone through these cycles and stages, which are freakishly predictable, as anybody who's taught meditation retreats knows. If you put people on meditation retreats and they do the technique, they go through these stages in order, have a nice day. You know, and so as as we passionate teachers, we we hang out and talk about the you know relentless predictability of this, um, and people find it incredibly helpful to have that normalized to say, oh, this is not just some weird you know out of the blue thing. There are actually um, you know bits of theory that can help me navigate this skillfully and not screw my life up and not make it more or less than it is and not fall into the standard traps because there are standard traps at each of these stages that people very commonly go wrong, and it's you know not unique to them. I mean, it's it's just almost predictable. Just like you learn when you, you know, start searching for anything you think is a unique thought on Google that hundreds to thousands of people have had the same question or thought. In the exact right. same way, these spiritual stages, the development of attention and concentration seems to be freakishly predictable, really almost in some ways, regardless of technique, because people, you know, from Christian contemplative traditions and people from, you know, uh, Vedanta traditions and people from, you know, uh, all, you know, shamanic traditions. And I see all these people who enter the same stages through very, sometimes techniques that superficially look very different, but have to involve basic sensate clarity and basic investigation of what's going on. With uh, the people that you have worked with, are there common traps, if you will, or is it uh, is it pretty specific to each person? And if there are common traps, can you name a few of those and ways out of them? Yeah, so sort of going in order of sort of the most common things that people run into, and I'm going to go, I'm just going to name stages and talk stage terminology. Um, mm -hmm. So this, what we call um, stage Two is a stage called cause and effect. And in the stage of cause and effect, whenever, whatever you pay attention to has some consequence for how it moves. And however, how, 
how things move has some consequence for your attention. So this is the stage when people say, I'm messing the breath up. I'm messing the breath up. I can't pay attention to the breath without messing it up. And I, it won't just flow normally. And it seems all jerky and sometimes stopping. And like, it feels like anything I do with my mind is screwing the breath up. Well, that's actually an important insight stage. And if they think that in that stage, they're not supposed to be screwing the breath up, that's not going to work because that's what that stage is about. It's just the mechanics of how attention unfolds. And so that can really throw some people and they may stop practicing because they feel like, oh, the breath has to be a certain way or, you know, and, um, or they, you know, try to do something else or they stop paying attention to the breath, even though the breath is a really good object, as plenty of people have noticed. And so, um, that's the kind of thing, uh, that, you know, can mess people up. Or the, the next stage um, is called the three characteristics, sort of a boring name for a stage that usually involves a lot of what we call hard pain and weird body tensions and weird back stuff. And your posture can get all goofy and it can like get weird neck and jaw tensions that are very asymmetrical, which can be really um, uncomfortable and can really throw people. And they can say, oh my golly, I, I must be a really horrible meditator because I've got all this pain and I'm supposed to, you know, I, you know, it shouldn't be this hard. And they, they don't understand what's going on when in fact that's a normal stage of insight practice. The next stage, weirdly enough, is ridiculously blissful for a lot of people and can involve a whole lot of, you know, vibrations and kundalini stuff and seeing bright lights and, you know, having sexual dreams and traveling out of body and psychic powers. Not everybody has all that stuff. So, you know, I don't want to, you know, make the, you know, and it's a sort of a complicated stage, so it can have a lot of aspects. It's worth reading about in detail. I'm not giving anything resembling a full description of it here. But the point is, those things can really freak people out. They can become sort of hypomanic or even fully manic um, for a little while. They can um, become utterly fascinated by all the strange stuff that's happened. They can become totally freaked out by it. Um, they can, it can involve radical paradigm shifts. They have affairs. They do wild things. They it's you know they can be very creative and very cool and very inspiring and very interesting. But they can also it can be very disruptive to a lot of people's lives. Um, the next stage, weirdly enough, is called dissolution, and that's where all of a sudden all the wild you know um, bells and whistles of the stage of the arising and passing away basically vanish, and people feel like they can barely get up off the couch. Like you know they just kind of want to lay there and go, yeah, not much going on. And and they're like, wait a second, I was just high as a kite and I had all these amazing abilities and my mind was so powerful and now I can barely meditate at all and I, I feel like I'm just kind of like going to fall asleep or whatever. What the heck is going on? And they feel like they're going backwards and that could be disorienting and confusing. And the next stage is one called fear. So fear can involve, for some people, you know, sort of exhilaration, thrills, and chills, but for other people, abject terror and panic for no obvious reason. And they may try to figure out, you know, reasons to kind of hang on the emotion, but it's almost like a tail wagging the dog where they feel afraid and they'll figure out some reason that they should be feeling afraid, even if there's no good reason. And they can leave retreats, leave monasteries, leave. they can become paranoid, they can you know, um, think other people are out to get them. It can be a really strange stage. And then misery, disgust, desire for deliverance and reobservation are stages that can totally disrupt relationships. If they were hy hypersexual a few stages ago in the arising and passing away, now they suddenly may have no interest in, in you know, being with their partner. They, they end relationships, they end uh, careers, they get mad at their bosses, they project out their anger and their frustration and their deep existential crisis and all kinds of people all around, all around them. Um, it's a really common time for people to just totally demolish all kinds of stuff and, you know, uh, end marriages and all that stuff. So 
Um, next stage, equanimity, is a um, is a really pleasant stage. It's broad, it's expansive, it's wide open, it's flowing, it's so nice. And uh, people may not understand that this is actually something awesome, even though it may seem so low-key to some people. They may not even notice. It's just like the bad stuff's gone, and now they're just fine. But they may not recognize that that is actually right on the lip of awakening, and they just have to just learn to see it a little more clearly in flux and flow and, and see a few key elements that that stage makes it very easy to see in order to awaken. But a lot of people will just sort of get lost in how nice the stage is and totally slack off in their practice. And it's not like it takes a lot of effort um, to do, uh, or sort of, sorry, to take um, equanimity up on the opportunities that it offers. Um, but it does take a little bit. And so a lot of people will just sort of slack off there and go, I'm fine. I don't even know why I was practicing. Everything's good. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm just going to kind of walk down the road and go get myself a sandwich or something when, you know, maybe actually a, a few more minutes on the cushion or something might have been all it took to really um, get some serious insight. And there are lots of other temptations that arise along the way, but those are some of the most uh, common ones. Is that, again, too long an answer? <laughs> no, no. I appreciate the detail. <laughs> Uh, and I think people listening will appreciate the detail. Right. And there's a lot more details of this stuff written down. If you want to check the standard store, uh, standard sources like, you know, Abhidhamma and, you know, Vasudhimaga, um, Vimudhimaga, um, there you know, a number of places these things are written down. My book, obviously, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Um, Jack Kornfield does a nice treatment of these stages um, in his book, A Path with Heart. Um, in the chapter called Expanding and Dissolving the Self. There are plenty of other books that cover this kind of material. Um, you know, so go find it somewhere if you're having interesting spiritual experiences or going on retreats. Because it's if you're practicing, it's it's almost inevitable you're going to run into the stuff and or you're going to run into it in the people around you, your partners, your teachers, your friends, you know, and it can be really destabilizing for them. And if they have some, some concepts that can help them figure out how to navigate these uh, more skillfully and put them you know, um, into some sort of framework, uh, that can really help people do a whole lot better and have better outcomes. In another interview of yours, I heard you mention uh, the shadow side of practices, and I'm, I'm not really sure I understood what you meant by that. Could you say a little on that? Yeah, so all of these uh, practices have their shadow sides. So, for example, training and morality, a really good idea, you know, right speech, um, you know, right uh, livelihood, right action, you know, all these things um, can have real shadow sides. So some people who um, become, you know, really into morality can become very rigid or uptight or judgmental or critical or critical of themselves or, or their, and those around them, um, very uh, sort of harshly puritanical. Um, and uh, people who train in concentration uh, can uh, rapidly uh, become addicted to some of the extremely pleasant and profound states that deep concentration practice can produce. And so then they may think, oh, this is all I need. That's all I need to do is get you know deeply into peaceful states. And they may not actually um, awaken what we call the golden chains. So these some of these spiritual side effects that can be produced that are great effects. I mean, it's not like those states don't cu uh, cultivate a you know, um, remarkable qualities of mind. They do. But that said, they're not the whole thing. And so people can become uh, addicted to those or sort of lost in those. And then Vipassana. So Vipassana, you know, insight practice, um, the shadow sides of it are complicated, but they can become sort of very, you know, as, as people learn to sit through large amounts of pain or difficult mind states or, you know, you know, harsh vibrational experiences or, or whatever, um, 
people can become sort of like that in the rest of their lives where they may just, you know, it's just one more painful thing and they just sort of ignore it. Like they learn to, you know, sort of like just notice their knee pain is just more vibrations or their back pain is just more vibrations when not all of life uh, does best when you have that response to it. There are some pains and difficulties and stuff that you actually want to do something about rather than just sit there. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can become sort of people who, you know, sort of do too much dry insight work as we call it, where they're, you know, don't have the, um, the jhanas to help them uh, can become sort of dry and harsh and flat and edgy and um, restless and sort of ungrounded and destabilized if they just go into, you know, realms of really fine, you know, uh, ultra fast vibrations and really analyzing every little blip and speck of um, what happens in their experience. Uh, that can be very powerful and also can produce shadow sides. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In terms of the, each, each of the traditions, each of the teachings, each of the ways of conceptualizing, of awakening, um, all can produce something that is a shadow side. Like if you say, you know, um, awakening, you know, uh, you know, in order to, you know, be a good person, you should practice loving kindness practices. And then people sort of, you know, uh, then use that as a way of ignoring the fact that they might be really angry about something. You know, that anger could become a shadow side that they could then right. come out in unskillful ways that they might not notice. Uh, you know, it, the list of possible traps is gigantic, but each of the practices, the techniques, the traditions has um, endless temptation to do something with it that's not as skillful as it was originally intended to do and, in fact, uh, is, can be harmful or destructive to you and those around you. In in your experience, does it take another person to point out that shadow if you, if you have fallen into that, or do the practices themselves have some mechanism that helps to prevent it? Uh, both are true. So if you continue to practice well, there can be um, plenty of self correction, um, but it is vastly easier if you have fellow co adventurers, teachers, dharma friends, sangha community. Um, whatever you want to call it, because mm-hmm. often people can see our shadow selves and shadow sides and and aspects in a way that we can't. And things, you know, these things are usually glaring, glaringly obvious to everybody around us, <laughs> and we may be totally blind to them. We're all we all can be uh, guilty of that, myself included. And so, I, I definitely highly recommend that if people are going into this, um, they have, if not teachers, at least wise Dharma companions that are farther down the path than they are, who are skillful and kind and can help them uh, to see. Because it's easy to go wrong with this stuff. It's easy to become imbalanced. And not that we don't learn things from that sometimes. We do. You know, plenty of uh, people have learned a lot from their sort of accidents and adventures and um, misinterpretations of the teachings. And you figure out why they, you know, um, gave whatever warnings associated with that, you know, teaching uh, there were, hopefully. Um you know, so again, sometimes something good can come from unfortunate processes, but in general, it's a whole lot easier if you've got people around you who know what they're doing and are, you know, older than you or more, you know, uh, spiritually advanced than um, you are, even if not older than you, and uh, have, you know, trained and um, well under the guidance of good people. I mean, it definitely, you know, both teachers and friends help. Is the online group that you mentioned, uh, it was Dharma Underground, was it? The Dharma Underground is the original uh, thing, which, which still sort of kind of almost exists. Um, it's not particularly active at the moment, 
but the Dharma overground arose uh. out of it. So originally, I was out on the web as you know, with my claims to attainments or whatever and putting labels on things, which, as most people notice, can get you an enormous amount of um, uh, internet uh, flame war stuff and trolling and stuff sent in, in oh, yeah. your general direction. And plenty of people decided, yeah, it's not really for me at this point. So originally we started something called the Dharma Underground, which was a password protective web website, you know, where a remarkable group of um, very advanced and skilled practitioners uh, gathered to discuss these things. And after a while of discussing them in secret and private, we realized, you know, actually these discussions are discussions that would be fine to have in the open web. And so we opened it up and created uh, the Dharma Overground, mm -hmm. and it's been the Dharma Overground ever since. So, Okay. Uh, I, was, I was curious if that group functioned in a way that could help people uh, with things like seeing the shadow side, or if that was something that was really too difficult to do online and actually needed face-to-face -face conversations? Face-to-face -face is clearly a lot better, but you can definitely do some of that work online, as we've all noticed. And, and we do, you know, it's a, it's a geographically very um, disparate group. It's all, you know, it's from people all over the world in lots of different countries and continents. And not only do online forums clearly show that people have shadow sides and that you can point them out, not always with perfect accuracy, but enough to, you know, um, but you, you definitely get to see people's shadow sides. You definitely get to see people that pointing those out. And you uh, can also keep in touch with people through other media like Skype or, you know, other online, you know, or phone or other uh, ways. And we do occasionally have gatherings where we um, have met together or, or come together in various ways. So um, through all those methods, uh, it is true that the Dharma Overground has helped lots of people to practice, and there's a diverse range of talent there, but a reasonable number of the people who help contribute there are quite advanced um, in terms of practice, very skilled, uh, awakened, um, technically savvy, scholarly, um, and, and there is a real pool of talent there uh, that is willing to lend a hand to people. So that's one of the nice things about that um, uh, group is is for all the complexities that come you know uh, happen when you run an open online forum. That said, we have had um, a reasonable proportion of people there and still do who uh, have a lot of insight, a lot of skill, a lot of Dharma depth to offer and uh, offer that freely. So um. uh, when you use the word awakened, what what do you mean by that? So when I use the word awakened, I use it in the same sense that I, I meant it earlier. I, I would add some, you know, the, the maps get a little complicated, but awakened would be someone who has at least stream entry and a stream oh, enterer. Okay. Has, um, so a stream enterer would be the first stage of awakening in a Theravada map. So four paths, stream enterer, second path is, you know, um, uh, Sakadagami or, you know, once returner. And then there's third path, which would be Anagami or never returner. And then there would be Arhat's fourth path. And then there's, you know, you can get into bodhisattva boomy models or, you know, Buddhahood levels or, you know, whatever you want out past that um, if you want to go for those kinds of models, which are interesting enough. And uh, why not? So because there's probably more stuff to map out there. Um, but uh, so that's, you know, when I think of the stages of awakening, that's what I'm uh, thinking about. And I still look at this through you know, sort of a modified Theravadan lens with some other concepts added in through some of the Mahayana and Vajrayana stuff. Um, but uh, the technical definition of a stream enter is kind of 
complicated, but usually involves having completed a whole cycle of insight up through, you know, mind and body, cause and effect, three characteristics, rising, passing away, dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation, equanimity, um, and then getting um, path and what we call fruition, where the entirety of reality vanishes and then reappears. Um, and then that changes the brain in ways that makes one a stream enterer. Um, their wake, waking experience may not be all that different um, sometimes depending on the person. So p- how people react to this and how they describe it varies pretty widely um, between people and practitioners. It's been interesting to see that range. Um, but uh, at that point, they tend to cycle naturally through the stages of insight. They have other um, things they can learn to do with their minds. And at that point, other stages in, of awakening are likely to um, uh, keep progressing while they're alive and their brain's in good shape. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, th- and then, but, you know, when I think of, you know, sort of the walking around awakening that comes with the later paths is a real sense of um, appreciating um, the immediacy of experience. So that each moment um, is really that full, immediate, complete moment that any sense of past or future or just thoughts occurring now to the degree that that is naturally seen, um, uh, that is some aspect of awakening. Uh, the notion of what I would call sort of intrinsic manifestation or awareness or luminosity or however you want to put it, that the awareness of phenomena is within the phenomena themselves. So um, awareness is not some centralized thing, but is intrinsic to the manifest colors and textures um, and space and everything that make up experience. The um, the degree to which that person appreciates that um, reality is happening naturally, not in anyone's control or uh, um, controlled by any central uh, sort of you know agent. Uh, the degree to which uh, so as a walking living experience, one appreciates that the whole thing is happening totally on its own. Um, and uh, the degree to which someone appreciates that there is no sense of a centralized observer. So that there is not some intelligence or some, some spot in the middle of your head or, you know, behind your eyes or wherever you think it is or in the middle of your chest or wherever that is sort of the center point or stable, you know, person. And to the degree that that is experienced, um, uh, clearly um, as, you know, being just more flowing, immediate, um, transient, causal, natural sensations uh, you know, that's what I think of as aspects of awakening. And eventually that can become your whole living experience. So there aren't any aberrations from that. So that everything um, that arises is perceived that way with those uh, qualities. And it, and it pervades everything. And at that point, that, um, that to me is, is uh, you know, the good stuff. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Um. There was something specific in your book that caught my eye. You mentioned the five spiritual faculties. Um, yeah. And you had them as faith and wisdom, energy and concentration, and mindfulness. Uh, in energy and that's and traditional. Con- that comes out of the Pali Canon, so that's not my stuff. That's old, you know, very I, old Theravada yeah, 101 stuff. I appreciate you saying that. I keep, I keep referring to all of this as your stuff just because I'm referring to your book, but sure, yeah. Uh, in, in regards to, you gave the example of a person who, uh, let's say they're sitting and they're trying to meditate, trying to concentrate, uh, and they're fidgety or maybe they're sleepy. 
Uh, and you mentioned how a person could adjust their level of energy and concentration to find a balance. And I was curious if if you could say anything more about that from a practical level, like how do you actually adjust your energy? If I mean, if you're tired, are you saying do some jumping jacks and then sit back down? Or what do you mean by that? Well, so the mention of posture change is actually so one of the first strategies you can try. So it's a it's a very simple strategy. If you're um, like, let's say you were doing a reclining practice and you were finding yourself falling asleep, well, you could try sitting. Or if you were doing your sitting practice and you were feeling yourself falling asleep, you could try standing. Or if you were trying your standing practice and you were <laughs> feeling yourself falling asleep, maybe you needed to get some more sleep, but um, or not eat you know such a heavy meal or something. But but you know then you could try walking and so. It, um, the, yeah, so the first thing you mentioned, jumping jacks, basically posture correction. So in, in a place, you know, for, you know, during the day, our energy level changes. And depending on, you know, how much we've worked recently and how much we've slept and what we've just eaten and all those things, our energy levels change as well as our, our level of physical health and thyroid and, you know, metabolism and, you know, mm-hmm. caffeine intake and all this stuff will will modify it. So simply modifying ordinary physical factors like getting enough sleep or, you know, enough exercise or enough sunlight or, you know, um, dealing with your depression or whatever, maybe. Um, so things that are straightforward and maybe not particularly, that don't sound particularly woo-woo, you know what I mean? Like those gotcha. are just um, easy things to adjust. Um, but then, so, and and sometimes that'll just do it. Like, you know, if uh, just change posture and try a posture that's more energetic if you're sleepy or simultaneously, if you're too restless in some posture or too ungrounded, try a posture going in the other direction. You know, if, if you're, you feel restless sitting or tilt a lot of pain, maybe your mind would do just fine with reclining practice because you've got plenty of energy and you're not going to fall asleep. So you can adjust, uh, you can adjust posture. That's a first basic thing to do. And then you can adjust what you do with your mind. So certain focuses of mind and certain techniques are more or less energy producing than others. So a lot of people find the breath very calming. Um, unless you look at it really, really, really fine and fast and try to figure out, you know, how many hundred sensations are there in the breath between the top of the breath and the you know bottom of the out breath. You know, that kind of practice can be really engaging and really energy producing as opposed to someone who's, you know, sinking down into the smooth, flowing you know, beauty of a circular, you know, expansive breath might find paying attention to the breath very calming and soothing. And so that, so that only, um, yeah, so, so that helps to show what you're doing with your mind can radically affect your energy level. So like I tend to do, you know, or I tended to do a lot of really rapid fire noting, you know, many times a second, noting sensations as they arose and vanished, you know, breathing, thinking, seeing, hearing, you know, feeling, you know, whatever, you know, really, really fast. That kind of practice is very, very energy producing and very engaging. And if you're feeling, you know, sloth or torpor, which would be the traditional words for those or boredom, try upping the resolution power of your mind and see how fast your mind can possibly go. Because there are lots of sensations coming in every second if, if our mind is attentive to them. Um, similarly, trying narrow versus broad objects will radically change the sense of energy of the thing. If you're just sitting, listening to what's going on in the whole room, subtle sounds, the air conditioner, maybe crickets, you know, in the distance or a subtle, you know, creak of the roof as the light hits it, you know, and it changes temperature or something will produce a very different effect um, than, let's say, if you're 
doing some really um, rapid fire mantra practice, you know, like some, you know, ultra fast, you know, hundred syllable mantra, if you were doing Tibetan practice, those are likely to have very different effects on your energetic system or, um, and so, uh, and then once we get better at this, we can learn to actually literally just say, okay, I want to be a little more calm. Boom. And, and because you've trained your mind, you can just call up calmness and say, oh, I'm too restless. I need to calm down. And you can just feel your energetic system shifting down, you know, the energy coming down um, and, and the attention stabilizing and grounding down. Or, you know, conversely, if you've gotten, you know, better at practicing um, and we've gotten some more internal control and wiring built up, sometimes you can just say, okay, wait, I, I'm really sort of slacking off. I just need a whole lot more energy and just call it up just by asking for it. And go, oh, there it is. And, you know, and so a more skilled practitioner will just have that on tap or say, oh, I really need some more equanimity in the face of this. Or, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting kind of dark and dry and heartless. I really could use some more rapture. And I realized I've just switched from talking about the five uh, spiritual faculties, to the seven factors of awakening. But it's this, you know, it's a similar list, right? And, and it's a similar set of concepts. <laughs> That just by refocusing on specific qualities, or if you're like getting really kind of bored, but you know there's a little bit of bliss somewhere, you you may be able to just focus on that enough to turn that bliss into something really awesome. If you're doing concentration practices, and just recognizing that you can do that, and learning how your brain does that, and seeing okay, if I direct the brain this way, it does this, and if I direct it that way, it does that. You can learn for yourself exactly what works for you and what brings up energy, what moderates energy, what brings it down, what increases concentration, what broadens concentration, what focuses concentration, what leads to better investigation, what leads to better acceptance, what leads to better you know, equanimity and tranquility, um, and what leads to better mindfulness. And sometimes, you know, like if you're feeling yourself getting lost, maybe you just need to open your eyes, right? I mean, some people, if they close their eyes uh, early in practice, will just kind of get lost in their thoughts. And maybe you need to ground in an external object like a casino object or a candle flame or, a, you know, a Tibetan tanka or, you know, which would be, you know, like a, an image of, you know, something like a green tar or something. Maybe you just need some external thing because when you close your eyes, you're just going to get too lost in your stuff. And, and other people have their own other sets of issues, which, you know, this is what, you know, makes it hard for me to practice. But luckily, you know, any um, well-developed tradition will have a large number of uh, remedies. And if you have uh, good teachers around, uh, they should all know them, <laughs> um, you know, because uh, that's hopefully how they got there and why they're um, able to teach is because they know how to help people through uh, some of the um, stages and know what the standard remedies that work are for each of the various difficulties that can arise. Is the is the Dharma overground, is that a place where, well, it sounded like that's a place where people can go and find who you would consider to be good teachers? So the, the structure of the Dharma overground is really interesting and in that there are a reasonable number of people there who um, are sort of formally Dharma teachers. They, you know, they have classes, they lead retreats, they, mm -hmm. you know, do whatever. But there's a larger portion of people who are, I guess they, you could say that they teach Dharma because they help people learn to meditate in an online forum, but they may not explicitly necessarily think of themselves as Dharma teachers, um, or they may not have that as sort of their explicit day job or their, you know, major hobby. They, uh, a reasonable number of people there are just other people who have insight who like helping other people to gain insight or concentration or to learn about, you know, the old texts or to navigate the politics of Buddhism or whatever it is. You know, there are lots of um, things to learn in this business. And um, 
plenty of the people there are just sort of volunteers who love talking about the stuff and love exploring it and love sharing it. And that's just their thing. So while there are teachers there and there's clearly different levels of talent, it has very much a more sort of egalitarian is the wrong word, but it's not a, it's not a strictly hierarchical model. Um, if that makes sense, even though there are some people there who explicitly think of themselves as Dharma teachers, there are no people that are designated by like the Dharma overground as teachers, if that makes got sense. It. And it. you, so it's, it's got a, it's got a sort of a more, um, yeah, again, egalitarian is the word, wrong word, but it's, it's not, it's not socially, structurally hierarchical, even if there is a hierarchy of talent. Uh, I ask because... I I didn't follow a Buddhist path myself, and it's not something that uh, that I know a lot about. But I do have a few friends who've who've been in some groups, and I've set in on a couple of groups. And it seems very rare to me to find a Buddhist group that is talking about attaining enlightenment. Like that's what that's why we're here. That's what we want to do. They seem to be involved in a lot of other things, in my opinion. So I was curious. That's true. Uh, I was and just curious what, I found is, what you thought yeah. was like, you know, if that's what I want, awakening, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, I, wh where should I go? Yeah, so that is, um, you know, very similar to what I found when I explored a lot of local Buddhist groups and um various centers and even major meditation centers. Plenty of the people there were there to further their psychotherapy or there to, you know, get away from some situation or just because mindfulness seemed like a good idea. But even on, you know, somewhat long retreats, plenty of the people there would have thought that the, the concept of awakening would be an absurdity. And of course they couldn't awaken, which is ridiculous and sad, right? I mean, these are a lot of very accomplished people who may have, you know, learned to do all kinds of other things extremely well. And I'm sure they could learn to meditate um, very well too. And some, you know, eventually do. Um, but the focus of uh, Buddhism as it comes to the West, not being awakening is a prevalent one. And that was actually what we, I initially found, you know, um, I had a very hard time finding uh, local people who was into what I, who, sorry, who liked, you know, the kind of stuff I was into, which is states and stages and maps and old techniques and, and really delving into this stuff deeply and learning it for oneself, um, which you would think would be the focus of Buddhism. But most of the time, you know, Buddhism, Buddhism as it comes to us, is more of a, a sort of moral lessons and some nice dogmas. And it's kind of more like, the, you know, what church is for a lot of people, which is a spiritual place to gather and get support from friends around a common set of teachings and dogma and, and icons and, and stuff. But it's not wasn't designed for, you know, radical perceptual transformation and plunging the depths of consciousness. So um, that's one of the reasons that the Dharma underground and then the Dharma overground were formed is that I was having myself a very hard time finding other people to connect with on this stuff. And even when I went on other um, online forums that were available at the time, if you actually started talking about real practice, you know, the flames and trolls would just come out and uh, it could get pretty... Um, it didn't look very Buddhist, but just put it that way. Anyway, <laughs> mm -hmm. so uh, so uh, this website and then a number of its sister websites. So there are a number of spinoffs like Awake Network, um, which uh, at one point was the Dharma Forum, you know, uh, refugees and and uh, Baptist Head, which is, you know, some of these are no longer um, online. But um, there are a number of sister forums also that, are, that have that same spirit as the Dharma uh, overground where we think, 
The point is deep practice. The point is radical transformation of consciousness. The point is learning the old states and stages. The point is exploring these things as far as they can go and as far as we can figure them out in this lifetime. And we believe it's doable, that we can do it, and that the old techniques and tricks uh, work, and that if we just get the dose high enough, you know, through retreats or enough daily life practice or whatever, this stuff will happen. And so that's basically, a, yeah, it is a very different paradigm from what you find a lot of places. And weirdly enough, a lot of the places that um, are not into this stuff, when you say those kinds of things, really react, um, what's the word? <laughs> not very politely. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so if, if, you know, and that's fine. You know, everybody's got their thing, right? And so if your thing is something other than states and stages and, you know, really deep um, learning to do all kinds of cool stuff with your mind. Cool. Uh, like, you know, plenty, you know, fine. But if you like that kind of thing, then there are places you can go for that um, and places online and and places in, in real life, you know. So there are plenty of good meditation centers with teachers who will talk about these things and, you know, really do expect real progress and real practice. And anything else other than that, they're going to be like, what the heck's going on? Why are you not, you know, why are you not making progress? Like we would expect progress if you were actually here doing the techniques what do you think happens to a person who who dies but hasn't hasn't awakened yeah so the whole rebirth question gets it's funny i get asked that one a whole lot it's it's such a it's a weirdly popular question um so the first thing is um i've had past life experiences where you know I, i have this notion that i was a this or that in some previous existences so those are interesting experiences to have, but practically, I would say the point is in this life, if you awaken, it will be vastly better. So there is no comparison from my own experience and the experience of my fellow Dharma co-adventurers in the before and after. It makes a gigantic difference. Not that you know, it didn't, you know, not that it transformed every aspect of this mammal, right? There's still a mammal, there's still this body, there's still this life. I still pay bills, you know, I mm-hmm. still go to a job and you know, there's still illness and sickness and conflict and all that stuff, right? But the experience of it and the perspective on it is really different and really better. And so regardless of anything about next lives, I would just do it in this one because it's totally doable. Just, you know, go to you know, go to um, Pandita Rama Lumbini and do six weeks or three months there or something and uh, rock it out. Just follow instructions and get awakened. And, you know, it's sort of a, sounds cookbooky, but it actually is because people who go there and follow the recipe get awakened and, and get insights. So, you know, or go to Pandita Rama in, in Yangon or go to MBMC in Penang, Malaysia or go to um, Tathagata in San Jose, California or go do the three month at IMS you know, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, or, you know, there's lots of other options. There are a bunch of centers in Thailand, you know, and there's plenty of other good teachers and traditions and or go find, you know, it in some, you know, Tibetan tradition or there, and there are awakened Zen masters. Go, go study with these people, do what they say to do, you know, within reason, you know, don't allow them to exploit you or anything, which happens on occasion, you know, as we all see from the scandal sheets, but, but pick good teachers, follow their instructions in reasonable, you know, in reasonable dose and go wake up. And so, I, you know, so because I don't think there's any excuse not to, unless you've got, you know, serious stability or serious, you know, um, I mean, so there are people whose, whose brains and bodies are just not going to handle what it might take. Okay, fine. But mm-hmm. if, if your brain and body are in pretty good shape, then um, go do it because uh, it beats the heck out of, you know, not doing it. And so I would just, I don't see any reason 
to sort of ask questions about, you know, some other life or some other thing when it's, it is totally available here. You just got to dedicate the resources and time, you know, and interest. It's straightforward from a weird point of view. And would you say the difference between someone who's awakened and someone who's an arhat is a matter of time and dedication and energy? Yeah. Okay. So what, yeah. So again, we get into the complexities of the politics of that word, which obviously I asked for when I put the word on the front cover, but, um, but yeah, so it's a question of like, you know, there are plenty of awakened people who haven't dissolved that last little bit of center point, that last little bit of holdout of, of mm-hmm. sense of stability or isolated independent perspective or whatever. Um, but the brain only has so much, so many tricks, right? There are only so many categories of sensations that it can, you know, that it can, you know, try to pretend ourself. And eventually, if you just get good at noticing, oh, this is what's happening right now, and you bring uh, attention uh, to what I think of as the core processes and some aspects of space and the sense of, you know, effort and the sense of, you know, uh, who you are and and sort of turn the attention, you know, sort of, it's a, it's a weird thing because um, you sort of have to turn the attention back on itself, right? So to go mm-hmm. kind of Ramana Maharshi on it, but it also really helps to turn the defense attention out wide and notice the luminosity of the entirety of everything that's in your full field of um, conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. And so um, if you do those long enough, eventually there's no more tricks the mind can throw at the thing and it just flips over. So yeah, I mean, from a certain point of view, it's a question of just time and and maturation of the thing, but there are techniques and and focuses that can help as well as, you know, I don't mean to get all woo-woo about transmission. There is definitely something to be said for hanging out with people who have done this. Hmm. Um, And I'm not the first person to have noticed that. You can attribute it to whatever magical or ordinary effect you like, but the effect is real regardless of... um, what you ascribe it to. And those people are around. I mean, you can find them there. And there's enough of them out there these days uh, that, you know, unless you're just incredibly poor or have very few resources or whatever, there are ways to find and sit with these people and hang out with them. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a couple of books, and that reminded me that uh, a key book for me early on was The Experience of Insight, which is uh, Goldstein, I think. I found that incredibly valuable. Uh, So I was curious if, other than your own book, if there were any other sort of introductory texts that you would recommend to people? So I recommend uh, Mindfulness in Plain English by uh, Bhante Gunaratana. Um, fantastic stuff. Um, if you want a deeper dive into some uh, some little more complicated, A Map of the Journey, um, I think it's by Ujodika. Um, that's a great book. I really like A Path with Heart. If you like it, sort of a little softer and more eclectic and slightly new agey. That's by Jack Cornfield. Still a fantastic book. There's a lot of deep spiritual wisdom in there. It's, it's almost so nicely written that you can miss how much good stuff is in there. Uh, mm-hmm. if, you, um, if you like uh, things a little more liturgical, or um, I would recommend uh, um, Buddha's... Uh, um, uh, Path to Deliverance uh, by Nyanati Loka, and it just takes a lot of real core Theravadan texts and and says something nice about them, you know, organizes them well. And if you like more of that kind of thing, I would, you know, you could pick up like the Vimudi Maga or the Vasudhi Maga, um, the Path of uh, 
freedom and the path of purification. Uh, those are, you know, now we're getting, those are, those are more complicated to get through. And particularly uh, the Vasudhi Maga is a hog. It's a, it's a, it's a hard, sl- <laughs> if you thought my book was hard, <laughs> give that one a shot. Anyway, if you uh, like that kind of thing, though, and want a sort of a more modernized summary uh, uh, version of it, you could check, up, uh, check out Shyla Catherine's Wisdom Wide and Deep. Um, so that would be a more modern sort of uh, distillation of uh, the Vasudhi Maga and the stuff in there. Um, what else is good? Uh, in This Very Life by Sayadaw Upandita. Fantastic straight-up Theravadan stuff. Uh, oh, and pra- I don't, can't remember <laughs> why in the world am I not saying this. Practical Insight Meditation, my favorite Dharma book of all time. Huh. So by the venerable Mahasi Sayadaw. So Practical Insight Meditation, a, a book that is small, pithy, um, outrageously to the point, and people, it, it's amazing, people read it, and they just, they don't notice how much ridiculously cool information is in it. Hmm. So if you read it, really, really look at what you're reading, because I talked to lots of people who are like, oh yeah, I read that, and blah, 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 and I'm like, no, if you read that, and you, you followed what it said, you, you, would, you would not be asking me the questions you're asking, you would know for yourself. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a book that would be easy to underestimate because it's not very long, but like the first thirty few, sorry, like forty something pages, are, are are gold. Just yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the whole book isn't that long, but yeah, the first forty something pages are amazing. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to clarify with people that I don't I don't think that your book is hard to read. Uh, it's dense though. It's it's not it's something that's meant to be practiced as much as read and. That's true. And really digested. Uh, so, yeah, just to try to read it like you're skimming through it is impossible and probably probably a waste of time. <laughs> That's probably true, yeah. I really enjoy film, and I find that film can be particularly inspiring sometimes in terms of ideas. Uh, are, are there any films that you ever recommend to people or that have really caught your eye that have a, a spiritual bent to them? That's interesting. Um, huh. I haven't thought that uh, much about that one. You know, uh, what the bleep do we know? It's all mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, it's uh, there, there's some profound stuff in there. It's actually, um, so that's a good one. Uh, what else uh, comes to mind? You know, it's funny. I don't generally think about film. You know, I, live, I sort of lead a hyper-compartmentalized life where I keep things in sort of different categories. Mm-hmm. And I don't generally think about I think of movies mostly for entertainment and don't think them a lot, about a lot um, about them in terms of spiritual teaching. And perhaps mm-hmm. I should. I mean, you know, they're the classic, you know, um, Buddhist movies out there, but um, none of them really look like uh, to me what I think of as really good stuff you would follow for practice. Yeah. 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 I was just curious. Are you. Uh... I mean, are you a, a teacher? Or can people can people study with you, or what? How do you see yourself in the in the spiritual landscape? Yeah. So um, the answer is no, no, and kind of, sort of, maybe <laughs> a little bit is how this works. So I, I work a full time gig as an emergency room physician, um, mm-hmm. more than full time actually, and then on top of that, I have a. a 
I'm an assistant medical director of a level one trauma center emergency department in northern Alabama. And those two things take a whole lot of time. Mm -hmm. Then I'm married. And so I like to make sure that my relationship gets some attention. And Uh, I have- uh, You are a wise man. Yeah, that's there's something to be said for that. If you're going to be married, you might as well try to do it well. And um, then I uh, have been uh, run the Dharma Overground, and am its you know um, main administrator. And not that I don't have some other people who help me moderate it and run the place, which I do thank. Um, so I'm very thankful for all of uh, the people who help make that place what it is. Uh, but it does take some time to go through it and pay attention to what's going on there. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I'm trying to fin- finish up the second edition of my book, which is taking most of my free time these days when I'm not doing all those other things. And somewhere in there, I like to have fun and sleep and eat and, and all mm. that stuff. So, mm-hmm. and exercise. And so I don't have a whole lot of time. So I, I do, you know, sometimes get emails from people and I'll try to get back to them within a few weeks. Usually I do um, occasionally have uh, Skype calls with people or telephone calls with people, that's usually a one-time thing where I refer them to people who have time, which at the moment I don't. I'm trying to figure out how to strip my life down at the moment. It's not as easy as you might think. Um, but uh, So that's a two-year project to figure out how I'll have a little more time and space to do some more uh, Dharma things. But in the meantime, um, there are all kinds of other uh, good people out there that you can interact with and study with. Um, if, you know, if you're looking for contact, that's more than like one conversation in which half of it is me directing you to other resources. Sure. You have a website. What's the address for that? So, um, you could, uh, look up, uh, integrateddaniel.info or interactivebuddha.com. They both direct to the same website is sort of my own personal website where I, you know, post some Dharma stuff and there's some, you know, a few videos and some podcasts and, um, the book is available online for free, by the way, um, there, if you want it, or you can find it on the Dharma Overground. There are plenty of other copies in the world, or if you want to, you know, um, pay for it, you can <laughs> buy a copy or whatever, but it is available for free because I like to try to keep money in the Dharma as far away from each other as um, possible most of the time. Um, I use the little bit of money I get from the book to um, help uh, fund the cost of the website and some other Dharma stuff I do. Nice. Um, so, Yeah. And um, don't take anything for teaching. So if you're wanting to give me any donation or anything, I, I won't take it. You could give it to Doctors Without Borders or your favorite charity, um, someone who's out there saving lives and doing good in the world, because uh, um, I'm doing okay. Um, nice. And then let's see here. Uh, so, um, uh, and then there's the Dharma Overground. That's dharmaoverground.org. And that's there are a lot of people there who like to help other people to learn to meditate well and explore these things and have fun. And like any online forum, it has its its uh, fiery and sparky and trolly and you know complicated moments. But that's just right. the, you know the, that's the internet. We all know that by now. So you shouldn't expect anything necessarily different there. Though we do try to keep it you know uh, to a dull roar as opposed to a, a you know endless screaming. Um, so. Yeah, uh, so those are some of the additional resources that might be helpful. Great, great, nice. Oh, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything that you you had a thought of during the interview that you want to mention? Or yeah, so usually usually there's some reason that someone like yourself is interviewing someone like me, and there's some there's something there that you know might be helpful to talk about. So. What was the interest? What sparked your interest? What What are you looking for? And how are you going to get it? My reason for doing the interview is is twofold, I think. One is 
this imagined audience uh, that I that I want to try to expose to uh, teachings and resources that they might not otherwise come across that I have judged from afar to be of value. And so this is the opportunity to actually speak with that person, that teacher, and and find out what they have to offer. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And then my for myself, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm still trying to work out teaching, how to teach, what are practices, I, my background was almost without maps and consequently, consequently today, when I think, how am I going to synthesize the things that I've gone through and the things that I've found and come up with something that resembles, if not a system, at least a logical, some logical advice that's, that's proving to be challenging. I'm, I'm actually writing a book as well. And and trying to put some of these things down in terms of how does all of this fit into a, a model. Uh, and because I, I didn't have well-formed models uh, for, for that reason of this danger of models, teachers that I, that I was with, some of them saw a great danger in talking too much about what might be ahead. While I, I think that was wonderful and that it worked. It was also tough and a lot of, a lot of doubt and a lot of not knowing. And, uh, and then I, as I say, I find myself today in a place where what, what can I say of value? And so I'm looking around at other people's paths and, and what's happened to them and, and seeing bits of myself, if you will, in things that you're talking about. Oh yeah, I know what he means. I never thought about it that way. That's good. I like that. I, that's a you know that's a good formulation. That's helpful to people. So I'm I'm picking up bits and pieces of things like that. Nice. Yeah. Well, there's some great maps out there. I mean, there's some bad maps out there, and there's some okay maps that have grains of truth, and then there's some really awesome maps. I mean, one of the things I really like about the Theravada and the sixteen stages is that is a great map. It is freakishly predictable and it's very explanatory and can help people really, um, you know, it is, when you start talking to people, it is very hard not to see that pattern again and again. And I don't think that's just scripting or someone like trying to fit everybody into a little box. I actually think that map just happens to really describe attentional and spiritual development unusually well. And I think they just, you know, just like people who describe you know, human anatomy or human, you know, embryonic development, if, if you describe it well enough, you've just described it and that's what it is. And I think some of these, um, some of these maps, particularly, uh, you know, the, the 16 stages of insight of, uh, you know, the, that come out of um, the Abhidhamma and the commentaries uh, are remarkable. Oh, the Abhidhamma, by the way, if you want to see, go back to the original sources on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um um, yeah, usually comes to people as a you know in the book a manual of Abhidhamma um, is a is a great place to check if you want old Theravadan straight up lists and analysis and stuff. Mm-hmm. Not not that easy to pra- to practice from, but very good background theory if you're looking to find some of the original source material for some of these things. Great. Well, that's all I have, Daniel. Well, I hope this has been helpful for someone. And if it hasn't, go find something else that is. Because <laughs> there's like helpful that. stuff out there and it's doable. <laughs> and uh, I hope this has been enjoyable for uh, you. And uh, yeah, it's been great talking with you.
It's been very enjoyable. I really appreciate it.